0: chapter sixty one of marguerite de valois by alexander dumas this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by john van stan savannah georgia chapter sixty one the headsman's tower night descended over the city which still trembled at the remembrance of the execution the details of which passed from mouth to mouth saddening the happy supper hour in every home in contrast to the city which was silent and mournful the louvre was noisy joyous and illuminated there was a grand fete at the palace a fete ordered by charles the ninth a fete he had planned for that evening at the very time that he had ordered the execution for the morning the previous evening the queen of navarre had received word to be present and in the hope that la mole and coconnas would have escaped during the night since every measure had been taken for their safety she had promised her brother to comply with his wishes but when she had lost all hope after the scene in the chapel after out of a last feeling of piety for that love the greatest and the deepest she had ever known she had been present at the execution she resolved that neither prayers nor threats should force her to attend a joyous festival at the louvre the same day on which she had witnessed so terrible a scene at the grève that day king charles had given another proof of the will power which no one perhaps carried as far as he in bed for a fortnight weak as a dying man pale as a corpse yet he rose about five o'clock and donned his most beautiful clothes although during his toilet he fainted three times at eight o'clock he asked what had become of his sister and inquired if anyone had seen her and what she was doing no one could tell him for the queen had gone to her apartments about eleven o'clock and had absolutely refused admittance to everyone but there was no refusal for charles leaning on the arm of monsieur de nancy he went to the queen's rooms and entered unannounced by the secret corridor Although he had expected a melancholy sight and had prepared himself for it in advance, that which he saw was even more distressing than he had anticipated. Marguerite, half-dead, was lying on a divan, her head buried in the cushions, neither weeping nor praying, but moaning like one in great agony, and this she had been doing ever since her return from the grève. At the other end of the chamber, Henrietta de Nevers, that daring woman, lay stretched on the carpet unconscious, on coming back from the grève her strength like marguerite's had given out and poor guyon was going from one to the other not daring to offer a word of consolation in the crises which follow great catastrophes one hugs one's grief like a treasure and anyone who attempts to divert us ever so slightly is looked on as an enemy charles the ninth closed the door and leaving nancy in the corridor entered pale and trembling neither of the women had seen him Guillaume alone, who was trying to revive Henrietta, rose on one knee and looked in a startled way at the king. The latter made a sign with his hand, whereupon the girl rose, courtesied, and withdrew. Charles then approached Marguerite, looked at her a moment in silence, and in a tone of which his harsh voice was supposed to be incapable, said, Margot, my sister. The young woman started and sat up. Your Majesty said she come sister courage marguerite raised her eyes to heaven yes said Charles but listen to me the Queen of Nevada made a sign of assent you promised me to come to the ball said Charles I exclaimed Marguerite yes and after your promise you are expected so that if you do not come every one will wonder why excuse me brother said marguerite you see that i am suffering greatly exert yourself for an instant marguerite seemed to try to summon her courage then suddenly she gave way and fell back among the cushions no no i cannot go said she charles took her hand and seating himself on the divan said you have just lost a friend i know margot but look at me have i not lost all my friends even my mother you can always weep when you wish to but i at the moment of my greatest sorrows am always forced to smile you suffer but look at me i am dying come margot courage i ask it of you sister in the name of our honor we bear like a cross of agony the reputation of our house let us bear it sister as the saviour bore his cross to cavalry and if on the way we stagger as he did let us like him rise brave and resigned oh my god my god cried marguerite yes said charles answering her thought the sacrifice is severe sister but each one has his own burden some of honor others of life do you suppose that with my twenty-five years and the most beautiful throne in the world i do not regret dying look at me my eyes my complexion my lips are those of a dying man it is true but my smile does not my smile imply that i still hope and in a week a month at the most you will be weeping for me sister as you now weep for him who died today brother exclaimed marguerite throwing her arms about charles's neck so dress yourself dear marguerite said the king hide your pallor and come to the ball I have given orders for new jewels to be brought to you, and ornaments worthy of your beauty." "'Oh, what are diamonds and dresses to me now?' said Marguerite. "'Life is long, Marguerite,' said Charles, smiling. "'At least for you.' The pages withdrew. Guillaume alone remained. "'Prepare everything that is necessary for me, Guillaume,' said Marguerite. "'Sister, remember one thing.' sometimes it is by stifling or rather by dissimulating our suffering that we show most honor to the dead well sire said marguerite shuddering i will go to the ball a tear which soon dried on his parched eyelid moistened charles's eye he leaned over his sister kissed her forehead paused an instant before Henrietta, who had neither seen nor heard him and murmured poor woman then he went out silently soon after several pages entered bringing boxes and jewel cases marguerite made a sign for them to set everything down gillonne looked at her mistress in astonishment yes said marguerite in a tone the bitterness of which it is impossible to describe yes i will dress and go to the ball i am expected make haste the day will then be complete a fete on the greve in the morning a fête in the Louvre in the evening." "'And the duchess?' said Guillaume. "'She is quite happy. She may remain here. She can weep. She can suffer at her ease. She is not the daughter of a king, the wife of a king, the sister of a king. She is not a queen. Help me to dress, Guillaume.'" The young girl obeyed. The jewels were magnificent, the dress gorgeous. Marguerite had never been so beautiful. She looked at herself in a mirror. "'My brother is right,' said she. "'A human being is indeed a miserable creature.' At that moment Gion returned. "'Madame,' said she, "'a man is asking for you.' "'For me?' "'Yes. "'Who is he?' "'I do not know, but he is terrible to look at. "'The very sight of him makes me shudder.' "'Go and ask him his name,' said Marguerite, turning pale. Dion withdrew and returned in a few moments. "'He will not give his name, madame, but he begged me to give you this.' Dion handed to Marguerite the reliquary she had given to La Mole the previous evening. "'Oh, bring him in, bring him in,' said the queen quickly, growing paler and more numb than before a heavy step shook the floor the echo indignant no doubt at having to repeat such a sound moaned along the waistcoating a man stood in the threshold you are said the queen he whom you met one day near montfaucon madame and who in his tumbril brought back two wounded gentlemen to the louvre yes yes i know you you are maitre caboche executioner of the provostship of paris madame these were the only words Henrietta had heard for an hour she raised her pale face from her hands and looked at the man with her sapphire eyes from which a double flame seemed to dart and you come said marguerite trembling to remind you of your promise to the younger of the two gentlemen who charged me to give you this reliquary you remember the promise madame yes yes exclaimed the queen and never has a noble soul had more satisfaction than his shall have. But where is? At my house with the body. At your house? Why did you not bring it? I might have been stopped at the gate of the Louvre and compelled to raise my cloak. What would they have said if they had seen a head under it? That's right. Keep it. I will come for it tomorrow. Tomorrow, madame, said Caboche may perhaps be too late. How so? Because the queen mother wanted the heads of the first victims executed by me to be kept for her magical experiments. Oh, what profanation! The heads of our well-beloved? Henrietta, cried Marguerite, turning to her friend, who had risen as if a spring had placed on her feet. Henrietta, my angel! do you hear what this man says yes what must we do go with him then uttering a cry of pain by which great sufferers return to life ah i was so happy said henrietta i was almost dead meanwhile marguerite had thrown a velvet cloak over her bare shoulders come said she we will go and see them once more telling gillonne to have all the doors closed the queen gave orders for a litter to be brought to the private entrance and taking Henrietta by the arm she descended by the secret corridor signing to caboche to follow at the lower door was the litter at the gate caboche's attendant waited with a lantern marguerite's porters were trusty men deaf and dumb more to be depended on than if they had been beasts of burden they walked for about ten minutes preceded by caboche and his servant carrying the lantern then they stopped. The hangman opened the door while his man went ahead. Marguerite stepped from the litter and helped out the Duchess de Nevers. In the deep grief which bound them together, it was the nervous organism which was the stronger. The headsman's tower rose before them like a dark, vague giant, giving out a lurid gleam from two narrow upper windows. The attendant reappeared at the door. "'You can enter, ladies,' said Caboche. "'Everyone is asleep in the tower.' at the same moment the light from above was extinguished the two women holding to each other passed through the small gothic door and reached a dark hall with damp and uneven pavement at the end of a winding corridor they perceived a light and guided by the gruesome master of the place they set out towards it the door closed behind them kibosh a wax torch in hand admitted them into a lower room filled with smoke in the center was a table containing the remains of a supper for three these three were probably the hangman, his wife, and his chief assistant. In a conspicuous place on the wall, a parchment was nailed, sealed with the seal of the king. It was the hangman's license. In a corner was a long-handled sword. That was the flaming sword of justice. Here and there were various rough drawings, representing martyrs undergoing the torture. At the door, Caboche made a low bow. "'Your majesty will excuse me,' said he if I ventured to enter the Louvre and bring you here. But it was the last wish of the gentleman, so that I felt I... You did well, maitre, said Marguerite, and here is your reward. Caboche looked sadly at the large purse which Marguerite laid on the table. Gold, said he, always gold. Alas, madame, if I only could buy back for gold the blood I was forced to spill today... Matre, said marguerite looking around with a sad hesitation Matre, do we have to go to some other room i do not see no madame they are here but it is a sad sight and one which i could have spared you by wrapping up in my cloak that for which you have come marguerite and Henrietta looked at each other no said the queen who had read in her friend's eye the same thought as in her own no, show us the way and we will follow. Kabash took the torch and opened an oaken door at the top of a short stairway which led to an underground chamber. At that instant a current of air blew some sparks from the torch and brought to the princesses an ill-smelling odor of dampness and blood. Henrietta, white as an alabaster statue, leaned on the arm of her less agitated friend, but at the first step she swayed. I can never do it said she when one loves truly henrietta replied the queen one loves beyond death it was a sight both horrible and touching presented by the two women glowing with youth beauty and jewels as they bent their heads beneath the foul chalky ceiling the weaker leaning on the stronger the stronger clinging to the arm of the hangman they reached the final step on the floor of the cellar lay two human forms covered with a wide cloth of black serge Caboche raised the corner of it and lowering the torch see madame said he in their black clothes lay the two young men side by side in the strange symmetry of death their heads had been placed close to their bodies from which they seemed to be separated only by a bright red circle about the neck death had not disunited their hands for Either from chance or the kind care of the hangman, the right hand of La Mole rested in Coconnas's left hand. There was a look of love under the lids of La Mole, and a smile of scorn under those of Coconnas. Marguerite knelt down by the side of her lover, and with hands that sparkled with gems, gently raised the head she had so greatly loved. The Duchess de Nevers leaned against the wall unable to remove her eyes from that pale face on which so often she had gazed for pleasure and for love. La Mole, dear La Mole, murmured Marguerite. Annibal, Annibal, cried the Duchess, so beautiful, so proud, so brave. Never again will you answer me. And her eyes filled with tears. This woman so scornful, so intrepid, so insolent in happiness. This woman who carried skepticism as far as absolute doubt, passion to the point of cruelty, this woman had never thought of death. Marguerite was the first to move. She put into a bag, embroidered with pearls and perfumed with finest essences, the head of La Mole, more beautiful than ever as it rested against the velvet and the gold, and the beauty of which was to be preserved by a special preparation, used at that time in the embalming of royal personages. Henrietta then drew near and wrapped the head of coconnas in a fold of her cloak, and both women, bending beneath their grief more than beneath their burdens, ascended the stairs with a last look at the remains, which they left to the mercy of the hangman in that somber abode of ordinary criminals. "'Do not fear, madame,' said Cabache, who understood their look. The gentlemen, I promise you, shall be buried in holy ground.' "'And you will have masses said for them with this.' said Henrietta, taking from her neck a magnificent necklace of rubies and handing it to the hangman. They returned to the Louvre by the same road by which they had gone. At the gate the queen gave her name. At the foot of her private stairway she descended and, returning to her rooms, laid her sad burden in the closet adjoining her sleeping room, destined from that moment to become an oratory. Then, leaving Henrietta in her room, paler and more beautiful than ever, she entered the great ballroom the same room in which two years and a half ago the first chapter of our history opened all eyes were turned on her but she bore the general gaze with a proud and almost joyous air she had religiously carried out the last wish of her friend seeing her charles pushed tremblingly through the gilded crowd around her sister he said aloud i thank you then in a low tone take care said he you have a spot of blood on your arm ah what difference does that make sire said marguerite since i have a smile on my lips end of chapter sixty one recording by john van stan savannah georgia